0: may the words of my mouth in the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. We're given in our epistle reading today a gracious warning from God. God warns us about the kinds of ways of living that are incapable of inheriting the kingdom of God. And he does this through Paul, who provides what is called a vice list. He catalogs a series of vices. And this is an ancient literary form. It's not meant to be exhaustive, meaning Paul is not listing every possible vice for every possible person, meaning if a vice is not on this list, well, that vice is capable of inheriting the kingdom. It doesn't function that way. It's meant to give a general but very clear picture, portrait of a human being that is driven by passion, and what that means is Their desires are disoriented. The dispositions of their hearts are twisted. And Paul gives us this list as a warning for the kind of lives that the Corinthians uh, and we ourselves are to cultivate. I I think it was Gordon Fee, the uh, theologian and Christian academic, who said if Paul wrote what we now call the Corinthian letter, first letter of the Corinthians to a church today, it would likely be to the church in America. Uh, we're very, There's a lot of parallels, as we'll see, uh, to our culture. But this list of vice, uh, vices, or as they're often called in church tradition, passions. And these vices are passions to the extent that we become passive to their influence, that we become unduly swayed by their power. So central to the life of vice or the life of passion is this idea of the loss of agency. When we're uh, ridden with vice, we are, Loss, have a loss of self-legislation, self-determination, a loss of self-control, which is a virtue and a fruit of the Spirit. And so this is why a life that is not indwelt and rooted in passions, a life instead that Paul is calling the Corinthians and us too, is a life of virtue that is one that is marked not by the loss of agency, but one where agency is established. It's one where there's a freedom, an inner freedom, a way of negotiating the world in a way that we're not just reacting, that we're not just responding with impulse, which is really at the heart of vice, is impulse. And it's a moving beyond impulse, into this realm of freedom. And Paul names this freedom right in the next section where he says, all things are lawful for me, (laughs) but not everything is beneficial. It's an incredible claim to think about the kind of heart, mind, conscious awareness that can produce a claim like that. All things are lawful for me but not all things are beneficial. And benefit will be seen uh, as it pertains, we'll see later, to our union with Christ and each other. But how do we get out of this position of being swayed by passion? Of being uh, under the influence, unduly uh, to do their bidding? How do we get out of this position This is uh, essential because this really gets at the heart of what the Bible pictures a human being is. In the Bible, a human being is a type of creature that while it has power, right, given to us, God gives us dominion over, this power is divinely given and even God-like. A human creature is nonetheless a kind of creature that is vulnerable to things that are more powerful than itself. This is part of what it means to be human. We are vulnerable to things that are more powerful than us. This is the archetypal example of salvation in the story of slavery in Egypt, where the Hebrew slaves are vulnerable to the power of Pharaoh. And this condition of the human means that we're able to be exploited. And this condition means then that uh, salvation is not fomenting insurrection so we can throw you know, Pharaoh off our shoulders. Because Pharaoh's army will always be bigger and meaner and stronger. It's not an insurrection. That's not the hope of salvation. That's not the hope of a creature who's vulnerable to power is more powerful than itself. No, the hope is that the Hebrews would become the recipients of a power greater than the power of Pharaoh. Salvation. This is the decisive act of God whereby God uh, saves us, not by our own power, but we become instead the recipients of God's own action. And this is salvation. And this is what God has done to us. The power of God, of course, is the love of God in Christ. And it's the love of God and the power of God in Christ that is being proclaimed even now, that God's power to liberate people from being unduly swayed by the world, the flesh, and the devil is happening even right now. Paul says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation. And God's power is manifested and acted upon the Corinthians. At the very end of the vice list, Paul says this phrase, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Uh, And grammatically, these are all the passive voice, meaning the Corinthians are uh, receiving the action of God. They're not performing the action. They're receiving the action of God. This is the only way out of this dilemma. And... This is why, uh, this is the logic of salvation, and this is why the church has never condoned or instituted self-baptism. Did you know this? Uh, even, it said, even if you are an end of life, there's no one around, but there's water around, you don't baptize yourself. Why? <laughs> it goes completely against the logic of that. Namely, uh, that we become the recipients of God's, power to save and this is why the logic of baptism is the same if you're two weeks old or you're 90 years old it's the same logic same point same means and paul is no doubt naming the sacrament of baptism in this triad of wash, sanctified and justified For it's in baptism that the mystery of the love of God in Christ is made available to us in grace. And what baptism is, is our coming into union with Christ. Union in God. What the gospel is, friends, is that God loves things by coming into union with them. God loves you by coming into union with you. And it's from this position of union that Paul reasons. Paul's uh, spiritual formation, moral formation, is based upon his profound foundation of our union in Christ. In other words, when we cultivate virtue, we're not adding something to us, but rather we're manifesting what is already there in Christ. So it's less like architectural. We're, we're building something that didn't exist and it's more archaeological. We're, we're uprooting the things that really aren't us. Passions. Because your, your truest self is Christ in you. You in Christ. The mutual indwelling and union. And this is where Paul goes. He responds to the Corinthians. Uh, this is how I'm interpreting it in, It makes sense to me and other commentators. But when Paul says this phrase, you know, the body is, or sorry, the stomach is meant for food and food for the stomach, uh, many scholars think that this is kind of like a a logical rationale that the Corinthians are using to justify impulse. Uh, Right? If hungry, give it food. And they were uh, also using this that, well, you have sexual organs. They're meant for sex. Give it sex. It's very logical. It's a very logical way of kind of baptizing impulse. And for Paul, the life of union is a life that all of us will reach to at a point, a stage in our spiritual growth, where we actually need to move beyond impulse. And Paul says that this movement beyond is that there's actually a greater desire than simply uh, sexual organs and sex or food and stomach. And Paul says this phrase that actually um, uh, the body is meant for the Lord. That your greatest fulfillment of your body is not going to be found in immediately satisfying that first impulse or drive, but it's going to be found mysteriously, as we sang in our first song, that fulfillment of desire is mysteriously in God. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He says, the body is meant for the Lord. And he has this incredible phrase. And the Lord is meant for the body. Here we see what will become the the doctrine of Theosis or deification, or as First Peter says, that we become participants of the divine nature, where we come into full union in God, where we become by grace what is true of Christ by nature. Paul says here that the Lord is meant for the body. Like, do you know, like where God when he, God thinks of home, <laughs> he thinks about you. Like where he wants to be. Where he wants to rest. Paul says, unashamedly, uh, the Lord is meant for the body. And this vision of union that is the basis for the good life that Paul says and is calling the Corinthians to that we are in such union with God, we're in such union with the Lord, that Paul says that we're actually members of Christ, and therefore members of one another. He's using the image of a body. And for example, this, this is my finger. But it's also me. It's me in proportion to it's my finger. But if you hit my finger... I will say, among other things, why did you hit me? Right? This is the vision that Saul has on the road to Damascus. Saul, why are you persecuting me? This profound union of the Lord and this people. Paul says that this is you. That you are members of Christ. And as members of Christ, we are also members of one another. Therefore, if this finger hurts, well, this finger is going to hurt too. So, what is at once our dignity that the Lord is for the body is at the same time our humility, a binding us together. So much so that Paul can say, We are the temple of God. This is where God dwells. And so how do we cultivate not vice, but virtue, which is the same thing as saying, how do we cultivate Christ in our midst? We do this together. There is a a monk by the name of John Cashin. He didn't write a whole lot, but what he wrote, St. Benedict-like. He liked it so much, he made all of his monks Read it. It's required reading if you're a Benedictine. And in that uh, portion of reading, John Cashin has a a great portion on what he called spiritual friendship. Uh, This was absolutely essential, according to Cashin. Absolutely essential. Uh, Spiritual friendship. That... Uh, the life of growing in sanctity, growing in Christ-likeness is impossible except for friends. But what is a friend, according to Cashin? This should be what the church is made up of. But what is a friend? Uh, friends are people who come together and they make uh, virtue the goal of their friendship. They make charity in other words, Christ-likeness. They make humility. They make gentleness. We're both we're going here. This is where we're going. And so friendship is mean to call people together in humility towards this, this like high calling in Christ. And I wonder if like part of the epidemic of loneliness today in our culture is not in some way connected to the fact that we've lost the vision of what a good life is. And thus, we don't know how to be friends. <laughs> we don't know how to be friends. And this vision that Paul is calling the Corinthians to, of claiming that you are, we are members of one another, that we claim each other as friends, We claim each other as sisters, brothers, that we make a claim on each other unto the end of the Lord who is for and meant for the body and who is the, the love by the Spirit that binds us together. My prayer for myself, for all of us, that we can perhaps by God's grace and God's providence, find someone who we can be explicit about humility, explicit, intentional about charity, gentleness, patience, all these things, and that by the grace of God, stir us up to lives uh, commensurate with the kingdom of God. Amen.